Let's uh, open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Luke chapter 9, we're still in the same verses and I'm loving it. I hope that you are too. Uh, Jesus is turning this church outward. Um, he's turning his disciples outward. He's turning us outward as, he's, as he uh, equips and, and sends them out on mission here. Luke 9. Verses 1 through 6. I'll read it and we'll pray. Dive in. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, No bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, went through the villages, preaching gospel and healing everywhere. Let's pray. But Jesus, you came to this earth on a mission. The Father sent the Son to seek and save the lost, to proclaim the kingdom, and to touch the lives of broken people, to give sight to the blind and release the captive. Restore the cripple and the lame. And as the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends His bride, His people, the church. God, we want to be your missionaries. We want by your spirit to carry on the same mission. And I'm praying you would use this text and our reflection in it, meditation upon it, to serve that end. For the salvation of the lost and the glory of our God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um. So, in our text, we um, have seen, hopefully now, quite clearly, that Jesus is sending his apostles, and really now his church, out into the world as missionaries. And um, a couple weeks back now, and still here this morning, we are trying to answer the question, okay, sent To do what? If we are his missionaries, what is our mission? Why has he sent us? What are the, keyword I've been using, uh, objectives? What are the objectives? The answer is provided clearly for us there in verse 2. Jesus, um, we're told, uh, sends them out to what? Proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He sends them out to one, proclaim, and two, to heal. Spent two weeks on to proclaim now, and this morning we set our sights on to heal. What is this part of our mission, this part of our objectives, Mean. I'm going to begin by um, stating as plainly as I can what I think the the fundamental meaning of this part of the text really is, um, and that's to say this: the proclamation of the kingdom of God ought never to be without an accompanying manifestation of it in some way. 
I'm going to read it again. That's just going to kind of set the course for where we're going here. But the proclamation of the kingdom of God ought never to be without an accompanying manifestation of it in one way or another. To proclaim is set aside to heal in the missionary call. Jesus, in other words, puts word and deed together into one package for his missionaries. He sends them out um, not only to explain the kingdom or the gospel, but to give evidence of it. And it's restorative power that the king is for real. That the gospel can save. And you touch a blind man and he's healed or whatever it may be. He's not only sent them out to uh, describe or declare. The king is here. The gospel is here. But he's actually sent them out also to demonstrate. Give demonstration Of the power that this king has to save. We don't just teach of God's grace. We touch broken sinners with it. We not only share the story, as we talked about last week, with others. Now we start to see that we also show the story to them with our lives and the way that we come to them, whether that's in love and power of Jesus. We meet them and the pressing needs that they have to heal. What does that mean? But to get into the stuff that hurts right now and to bring the restorative power of Christ there to touch that word and deed kept together in the missionaries call. Again, the proclamation of the kingdom of God ought never to be without an accompanying manifestation of it. We have been sent out to proclaim and sent out to heal. This uh, should come really as no surprise to us because in essence, it's just an extension like we've been seeing of Jesus's ministry and mission, right? This is uh, what you could boil down Christ's whole ministry to. Word and deed. In fact, I had this whole long list of texts that obviously I had to cut out, as usual, that I wish I could have given you. But instead, I'll just take it to the immediate context. Verse 11, chapter 9, you see it. This is what our Savior is doing. That's why he sends his church out to do it. Verse 11, we read there that the crowds hear of Jesus, uh, and he's out there in the wilderness, and they come to him. And then we read, he welcomed them, and what? spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Let's talk about the kingdom and let me touch you right now with that sort of kingdom power. And this means something for every person sitting in this room personally as well. It means like we've been talking about, the gospel is radically relevant to what you are facing right now. The power of the king doesn't just get you into the kingdom of heaven, so to speak, to come. It touches your life right now. It gets in right now. You're in the kingdom right now. And this king wants to meet you when you have a hungry belly like the feeding of the 5,000 there in verse 11 or whatever it might be. He wants to meet you in it. It's not just word. It's not just talk. There's deed in the midst. And it's not just Jesus who's doing this. It's now his church. It's his disciples who he sends out to proclaim and to heal. Now, um, I feel like I've been having long uh, introductions lately for some reason, but uh, this is another one. I, before even really diving into some of this, I, I wanted to set up uh, why I think deed ministry um, is so important in our day. Keeping uh, deed alongside word has, is always, has always been important for the people of God and the church in their mission. But as I reflected on it, I thought, man, 
It might be that it's even more important today than it's ever been. I have two reasons why I think this, although I could have come up with more. Let me give them to you one at a time. First, deed ministry helps people rewire associations. I'll tell you what I mean by kind of illustrating this for you. It was actually kind of funny how this came to my mind. (laughs) So I uh, was barbecuing. One of the best gifts I've ever been given is this barbecue by my in-laws upon my graduation uh, from Westminster. It's a Weber grill. It's got to be good, right? (laughs) It's got to be good. (laughs) I'm barbecuing, and I have a tendency of getting distracted, right? And I get off into something, and then, oh, no. Hope we're down for charred black steak tonight, honey. So I usually set a timer to keep me focused, right? Okay, five minutes, then flip. Five minutes, then done. Okay, so set the timer, right? I can't remember what it even was on the grill at the time. But here's what happened. Uh, for whatever reason, um, the, or, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. When the timer ran out, and it, and it sounded off in my, po- in my pocket, uh, on my phone there, reminding me that the, that the meat was done. Um, here's what I had. I had this kind of like guttural, visceral response to the sound coming out of my phone. I had like, it was like my soul cringed, like something deep inside of me started screaming. And, and uh, you're probably wondering, and at the time I was wondering, wait, why am I having this response to this sound? <laughs> am I losing my mind here? This is, this, is a, this is a happy time. The steak is ready. Why am I feeling anxious and scrambling to ch- turn this sound off? And here's what I realized. This is where this whole idea of associations struck me. For some reason, the the timer chose, uh, I don't know, maybe I guess I did, chose to use the um, sound that I also use for my morning alarm clock on my phone. And I'm telling you, I hate that sound, right? (laughs) You with me? I'm I'm not the kind of guy that like turns on his happy music and just wakes up. Like I turn on the most annoying sound. It's jangling in it and it's calling me back from the dead or my dreamland, you know, back into the land of the living. I don't like that. I have bad associations with that sound. So when that came out of my pocket, even though it was telling me the steak is ready, my heart was saying, no, 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 this is a bad time. Turn it off. And it's funny, but then it did, it it struck me. How we can associate things with, even though it's it's, it's not relevant to what's at hand. Like that timer was telling me something good was taking place. It was a celebratory moment, right? The steak is ready. It could have been telling me that the cookies are ready to come out of the oven. But because I have these associations, I've made the connection in my mind. That sound means it's time to get out of my warm bed and we're getting the kids ready for school again or whatever it is. Because that association has been made, the reaction takes place. Even if it's a happy time, even if it's good news. You with me? Here's the point. While the gospel will always sound a bit offensive to natural man, for many, even the very mention of Jesus or the gospel or Christianity causes their soul to shudder. And it's not so much because of the message itself. It's because of the messengers they have known, the Christians they have known or they've read about in the newspaper or seen on the news. The associations have been made because there was breakdown between word and deed. Now they want nothing to do with the word. Their soul shudders at the very thought when they hear the gospel or when they hear about, you know, uh, Jesus or Christianity. It doesn't matter how eloquently we talk about it. The wonders of His grace, the glories of heaven, the amazing love of a God who would send His Son to die for sin. It doesn't matter how eloquently we talk about it. They hear hypocrisy. They hear a sales pitch. 
They hear an ancient story that's brought, that's brought more harm into the world than good, historically. That's what they hear when they hear Christian or Jesus or gospel. They think of the pastor who molested their sister when no one was looking. Or they think of that, you know, church member who gossiped viciously about their family with the other members. Well, nothing to do with Jesus. Or they think about what they see on TV when you got the televangelists with the slick hair and the gold chains or whatever it is who want your money and could care less about your soul. That's Christianity. That's the association that's been made. Breakdown between word and deed. And so we, brothers and sisters, get the privilege of coming in and reforging that link to people that have, have, have associated all the wrong things with the most wonderful news in all the world. I mean, can I just tell you, this is why. So I have an affinity for Campus, for Crade, Campus Crusade for Christ because they're the ministry that essentially reached me with the gospel. But did you, I wonder if you know, maybe you don't, and you'd have no reason probably to know this, but they're, they're officially now, they've changed their name to Crew. Why? C-R-U. Why? We don't want to be called, what? Crusade anymore. Why? Because as their ministry has expanded, the history of the church and the crusades, a major blemish on our witness before the world is actually causing a hindrance to their ministry. Associations have been made. That's what Christians are like. That's what you're doing here. We've got to change our name. I guess crew is better. They probably could have... Uh, yeah, I think it's still there, but regardless, you see this happening. And again, we get the privilege of saying, no, let's, listen, man, some people are going to come in the name of Christ that are not going to represent him well. And you know what? There's going to be breakdown in my own life, too. But gosh, I pray. I pray you see something of what he's like in me. We get to come into a culture that's just over Jesus and over Christianity and show them something fresh. Show them some of those associations aren't all right. Show them, and maybe there really are cookies in the oven. Maybe there really is a tri-tip about to come off the grill. Maybe the good news really is good. Wouldn't that be awesome if the associations were rewired because of us? When they hear Christian, when they hear gospel, when they hear Jesus, they don't necessarily think, man, I love that message. They might still think we're fools, but man, they go, gosh, those people, I can't deny their love and the wisdom of their lives and the way that they serve me. I'm not that into this whole cross and my sin thing. I, don't, I still don't like that all that much, but man, there's something sweet about the aroma coming from those people. Wouldn't that be cool? Our good deeds... Open people up to the good news. So first reason I think deed ministry is so important, associations can be rewired. Second reason in our day, um, bear with me on this, deed ministry really helps us to reach the nuns, not the Catholic nuns in a monastery. N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. I'll tell you what that means in a moment. For modern man, um, in this increasingly secularizing world, all that matters is what he can taste, what he can touch, what he can feel, what he can experience. Because in a secularizing world, for a man who's bought into uh, 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 the fact that there is nothing beyond, God is, is, is not in the question. There's no spiritual. It's all physical. It's all existence. It's all experience. It's all here and now. There is no meta-narrative. There is no God. There is no heaven or eternity. There is no soul. We are just a bunch of atoms and molecules. That's where culture is going 
uh, by and large. And this is why statisticians and sociologists now talk about the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those people who are no longer affiliated with any religion because they just don't think it matters very much anymore. Commenting on this, uh, I wanted to read you here. Gabe Ballard penned an article for the National Geographic entitled The World's Newest Major Religion. Colon, no religion. In it, he writes this. Around the world, when asked about their feelings on religion, more and more people are responding with a meh. M-E-H, you know what that means? Who cares? Not that big of a deal. The religiously unaffiliated, called nuns, are growing significantly. They're the second largest religious group in North America and most of Europe. In the United States, nuns make up almost a quarter of the population. In the past decade, U.S. nuns have overtaken Catholics, mainline Protestants, and all followers of non-Christian faiths. There have, been, uh, there have long been predictions that religion would fade from relevancy as the world modernizes. But all the recent surveys are finding that it's happening startlingly fast. France will have a majority secular population soon. So will the Netherlands and New Zealand. The United Kingdom and Australia will soon lose Christian majorities. Religion is rapidly becoming less important than it's ever been, even to people who live in countries where faith has affected everything from rulers to borders to architecture. God? Spiritual reality, absolute truth pressing in from outside, creator. Meh. No thanks. Irrelevant to my life. What I think matters. And if I were just to linger with you on this for one more moment, um, This is not just the case for the adults that you rub shoulders with here in Silicon Valley. It's actually the case for their kids as well. Can I just, can I just relay this to you? I mean, so I am amazed at my uh, Chloe. So those of you who know Chloe know she is a strong-willed little kid. And if God can get a hold of it, it can be used for good. And, 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 uh, and she is right now this, this radical evangelist in her class. Okay. Almost like, Oh gosh, Chloe, we gotta, we gotta rein you in a little bit here. Uh, she's taken surveys on who's a believer and who's not. Uh, last night she told me, or not last night, uh, a week that, like about a week ago, uh, I was laying in bed with her, kind of putting the kids to bed. And, um, she's telling me this story from her day. She said, I, you know, there's this kid in my class. I was begging him, daddy, to receive Jesus. And I said, wow, this is amazing. And then it was just tragic. So you want to know what he said? He said, there's no God. I don't believe that there's a heaven after we die. We just die. That's it. This is a kindergartner. See what I'm saying? This is the next generation. This is what this is what is happening. Am I popping here? Sorry. This is what is happening. Just atoms and molecules. Don't talk to me about God or spiritual reality. Physical. That's what matters. Now you with me? Why you think? Deed ministry is important in this context. Think about it. Recalling what we've been discussing the past couple of weeks, if this is where modern man is at, how do you meet him in his story? How do you meet him in his story, in the stuff that matters to him, and then walk him back into the story, the gospel, the true story of the world, how things really are? How do you meet this man? You meet him in the atoms and the molecules. You meet him in the physical. You meet him in the everyday stuff of life. In other words, you meet him with deed. He's not going to hear your words 
about heaven or God or grace, doesn't think any of that matters. But man, you give him something he can taste, he can touch, he can feel, he can experience, and it just might open him up to something else. Deed ministry just might lead him to the word. You open your wallet to help him make his mortgage payment. You clear your schedule so that you can stand by him the day after his dad drops dead, unforeseen, the night before. Or you lay your hands on his back. You mind if I do a Christian weird thing for a moment? And you've been talking about this back pain and you can't find anybody to heal. Do you mind if I pray? Just ask God to do something. Lay hands. And maybe God just heals it. Now that gets this man's attention. Because the spiritual breaks into the physical. It gets into his story. And it begs the question, where does that kind of love, that kind of power come from? Our good deeds open people up to the good news. We can, we can meet them in the atoms and the molecules and walk with them back to the living God. Okay. Now, I want to press in on this for a moment. I've established a bit of the importance for this deed ministry here in our culture today. I, I, I want to know now a little bit more. How do we do it? What, is it? what does it look like? What does it look like? Uh, two things in my mind. This is really going to serve as kind of the outline for where we're going from here. Um, one, we can pray the miracle. Two, we can act the miracle. Pray the miracle. Act the miracle. Now, we um, first need to deal with really what our text actually says. Um, I've already been kind of broadening out this concept of to heal, to include acts of service and love, if you've been noticing, the idea of deed, (laughs) ministry. Uh, But honestly, uh, if we were to go back and just look at what that text is talking about, it's talking technically about healing, healing, Uh, not just kind of loving and and doing good acts of service, although I think that's an implication, and we'll get there. We first have to deal with the fact that it's talking about power coming from the risen Lord towards people in our lives that He wants to save and get a hold of. It's talking about miraculous intervention. It's talking about the kind of things that Jesus has been doing up to this point in Luke's Gospel. Like paralytics, walking, Lepers, flesh, once mangled, now restored. The flow of blood stopped. Diseases cured, even dead raised. It's the sort of stuff we've been seeing Jesus do. And this is the sort of thing he now empowers his disciples to go out and do as well. To proclaim and to heal. And so, here's the big question, right? I don't want to just gloss over that reality and say, oh, it just means acts of love and we're good to go. We've got to stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If it meant miracle and power and supernatural intervention instantaneously, does that sort of thing have a bearing on our ministry here today or not? Is that relevant for us in the 21st century? Or was this sort of a, an apostolic thing, an early church thing? Is this for us? Now, um, I happened to go to a, a school that largely believed that... Uh, Spiritual gifts and things all stopped. Um, and it broke my heart. And it troubled me. So I wrote most of my term papers on this subject. So I could have given you a lot more than I'm giving you here today. And I'm very passionate about it. But here's what I will say. 
there are many in the Christian world today who no longer believe that the miraculous, in particular the miraculous spiritual gifts, are in operation. Uh, they believe that these things have largely ceased. Now, they may pray for miracles and things, but the expectation of it really happening is not so strong. They try to uh, ground their reasoning in the scriptures, and there are a lot of godly men who hold this position, so I'm not. There's room for debate, for sure, even within this church. We consider this a doctrinal distinctive, kind of our position, but there's room for difference if you hold differently. I'd love to talk to you. They ground their position in the scriptures, and to my research, what you find largely is that the main kind of support for their argument is that these spiritual gifts, these miracles, the healings and the signs and the wonders, these things essentially existed, were given by God to attest to the, uh, the authority of the messengers, the apostles as the authoritative witnesses for God. They uh, essentially were God's way of saying, hey, everybody, listen up to these guys. I'm at work in them, and what they have to say is my word. So it was a way of attesting to vindicating the apostles in particular. And with that being the case, then the argument goes that when the apostles had run their race, when the canon of scripture closed and no one, there were no longer any authoritative inspired witnesses for God, well, so ceased the miraculous spiritual gifts, the need for signs and wonders and things. We have the Bible. We have it now. The signs and wonders attested to what we have here, and that's it. Good enough. We shouldn't be going out expecting these same sorts of things or even pursuing that. Now, certainly, uh, attesting to the validity of the apostles is part of the purpose of the miraculous, no doubt. Um, that's why Paul, when defending his apostleship, apostleship to the Corinthians, writes this. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. I proclaimed the kingdom, I healed, therefore you knew I was an apostle. Attesting to the apostle, signs of the apostle. You see it. Absolutely that is part of the purpose of the miraculous. But is that the whole purpose? Point to the apostles and then you're done. I think that that is a simplistic and devastating reduction. I do. When we look closer at the biblical data, here's what we find. We find that the miraculous, the gifts are given by God to attest not only to the validity of his messengers, the apostles, but also to attest to the validity of the message itself, the gospel. I might lose you. I don't want to lose you. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians earlier. It was not just his apostleship that was confirmed by signs and wonders, but 1 Corinthians 1.6, the testimony about Christ, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The signs and wonders validated not just Paul, but the testimony about Christ, not just the messenger as the authoritative witness, but the message itself as true. The true story of God, the one way of salvation. Do you get the distinction here? If all the miracles do is attest to the apostles, then rightly so, when the apostles have run their course, when they have, have, have finished their ministries, then the miracles and the signs and wonders are done. No longer needed. But if, but if the miracles also attest to the gospel as the real thing, well, then that makes the signs and wonders perennially relevant to the end of the age. Do you see where I'm going with this? Because this same gospel is what we bring to our neighbors and our co-workers and one another. 
And God just might and should and would want to vindicate his own glory and vindicate, attest to that message for them. So that as you proclaim, the power of God is present as well. If anything, if anything, I mean, it shows them that Jesus Christ is risen and alive and active in this world. And that the gospel is his means of saving. The cross that we speak of is attested to with miracle. The miracle, in this case, doesn't attest to my apostleship, right? If I pray for my friend and my friend is healed, it doesn't tell them that I'm an apostle. It tells them that Jesus is alive. And there's something to the gospel, we pray. Um, this is why Paul three times commands the Corinthian church to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. 14, 39. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts three times. Why? Why does Paul care so much that the Corinthians have spiritual gifts? If all the spiritual gifts do is attest to his apostleship, it makes no sense. But if... If the spiritual gifts attest to the message itself, it makes all the sense in the world. Because Corinthians, if you want the gospel to be seen and believed out in the world, the man, God gives signs and wonders to vindicate that, to make it fruitful and successful, to convict people that, man, maybe there is something beyond the material. Maybe God just touched me. Paul knows, as he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 14.25, that when an unbeliever sees these sorts of things going down, he will fall on his face, worship God, and declare that God is really among you. Do you see the missionary purpose of the signs and wonders? you see that? So that the unbeliever comes in and goes, man, God must be here. I didn't think God was even the real thing until I came into the midst with these brothers and sisters and I saw what I saw. It's a missionary purpose, not just apostolic. He pours out his spirit so that they can go in power to the ends of the earth. Have we gone to the ends of the earth yet? No, the spirit is still needed in power to attest to the message. Right? You with me? Am I losing you? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it is is common to him um, in pointed fashion. It is perfectly clear that in New Testament times, the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs, wonders, and miracles of various characters and descriptions. Was it only meant to be true of the early church? There's our question. The scriptures, he says, never anywhere say that these things were only temporary. Never. There is no such statement anywhere. What often happens is, is we let experience trump exposition. I get it. We don't see miracles all the time. We want to see them more. God, uh, Hebrews says, he distributes them according to his will. It does seem like he, uh, in a particular way, willed to uh, uh, display them more as the gospel was breaking barriers. And even still today, on the cutting edge of gospel ministry, you see more of these things as he attests to the message with signs and wonders. But none of that means we should therefore go, ah, I guess it's over for us today. I guess 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and earnestly desiring the gifts doesn't matter to us. No way. No way. We need to let this text search us a bit. We need to ask ourselves, man, okay, so maybe it was in a special way with the apostles. But am I even pursuing it at all today? If I'm not seeing it, 
It's one thing to pursue and not see. It's another thing to not pursue at all. Right? To not pray. Because I'm afraid. I'm going to look like a fool. I don't want to pray for my coworker or my neighbor. <laughs> I prayed for a person once. This girl I met on the street. Didn't heal her. But you want to know what she said afterward? She said, I just, my whole body felt warm. I felt like something. Didn't heal her. She started coming to our ministry because she was like, I feel like God did something inside. We can't know what God's going to do if we don't step out or pursue or pray the miracle. Pray the miracle. Um, in other words, what I'm calling us to be like is, um, I want us to be like the early disciples when they're huddled in, in, in that room in Acts 4 and they're scared. I love this scene. I think I mentioned it a couple sermons back. But what they do is they earnestly pray to God that he would accompany their ministry with signs and wonders. This is what they say, Acts 4, 29 through 30. Let's join them in this prayer. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Signs and wonders attest to his resurrection and life. God, as we proclaim boldly, don't leave us to ourselves. Let the power of the risen Lord be with us to heal as well. Attest to the message so that secular man wakes up to something beyond atoms and molecules. First, we pray the miracle. Now, secondly, we act the miracle. And this is what will bring us home uh, this morning. There is more to this idea of healing than just praying the miracle, I think. Uh, And I do want to draw out some of these implications now. um, Because sometimes we, and, and perhaps many times, we pray the miracle And it doesn't come. You lay your hands or you get on your knees. You fast, you pray the miracle and it doesn't come. What then? What then? Well, I guess our witness with this person is done. God doesn't want to attest his message uh, to him. So I guess that's it for us. No way. We don't walk away dejected. We don't abandon this person in their time of need. We remember what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13. It's amazing because in between his discussion about spiritual gifts and these miracles and things in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 13, he puts this passage that everybody quotes at their wedding. The essence of it is this. The greater miracle, the greater miracle, You could ever evidence before someone as you talk to them about the gospel is your love, your genuine, authentic, I'm going to lay down my life for you, love. Paul says, the fruits of the Spirit trump the gifts of the Spirit every day. If you have all the power and you could do all these signs and wonders, but you don't have love, you keep wiring the bad associations with the gospel. Because it's love that needs to stand at the bottom of it. So if we lay our hands on a brother or sister... And we pray the miracle, and the miracle doesn't come. We don't walk away dejected. We press in towards them in love. We recommit ourselves to bring healing another way. We pray that God helps people with their finances, or with their depression, or with their illness. But we're also ready to open up our wallets, our homes, our lives 
if it will help. When we pray for God to remove the cancer and our dear friend, but the cancer still remains. We don't leave her there. We press in. We schedule meal trains so that her family doesn't have to worry about how they're going to get food. And be with me here. I'm talking about not just in the church. I'm talking about your co-worker. Let's, as a church, schedule meal trains for people you know and don't know Jesus. We schedule meal trains for them so that they don't have to worry about food. We, we try to set up child care or, or babysitting so that her kids can be watched when she has to go to doctor's appointments. We clear our schedules so that when she goes through chemo, we get to come in and sit by her bedside and hold her hand and cry while she cries and suffer while she suffers. That, Paul would say, is an even greater miracle. That is the spiritual breaking into the physical in a powerful, compelling, alluring way. We truly love her. And in that, we work for healing in the stuff that is most pressing for her. We meet her in the story, her story. And in that, we start to walk her back towards the story. The one who loves us like this. My love, just a picture. Where's this coming from? You ask, why would we do this? You ask, gosh. It's not in us to do these sorts of things. You are witnessing a miracle of God's grace. I'm such a sinner. I'm so selfish on my own. But Christ, man, gets a hold of me. It's conforming me to Him. That's what it's about. It's His Spirit at work. He's going after you. He wants to heal wounds deeper than cancer. If you can believe that. So at the end of the day, what we are really saying with all of our activity, all of our deed ministry, praying the miracle, acting the miracle, all the above, what we're really saying is that Jesus is the real thing. That his, 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 his life, death, resurrection, really happened. When Jesus goes, he says, I leave you as my witnesses. He also says, I fill you with my spirit and you will be my body. You are my physical representation. You are the evidence to the world that I exist, that I am alive. Where you walk, I walk. When you touch, I touch. When you speak, I speak. So our deed ministry and our love for people evidences the resurrection of our Lord. Because He's the one, Christmas time, who so loved us, He came down into our mess. He opened up His wallet, so to speak. He cleared His schedule, so to speak. He took on our pain, our suffering, our sin. And goes to the cross so that we can know healing at the deepest level. Deeper than we ever knew we had need of. By his wounds we are healed. He's come into our story like that. And just lit us up for the story. And now he sends us. By his spirit. To go out. Highways and byways, the neighborhoods, the barrios, the neighborhoods, the nations, to do that as well. To open people up to the good news by our good deeds. I'll leave you with the words of John Stott here. Uh, I thought this was very profound. Um, He says this. The greatest 
single secret of evangelism or missionary effectiveness. Are you ready? All those who want to be effective as evangelists or missionaries, listen up. John Stott's a smart man. The greatest single secret of evangelism or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. Did you hear that? To love someone, to love the lost so much that you would take up your own cross as you follow Him and speak to them about His cross. If we want to be effective in our proclamation of the the crucified Savior, We need to be ready, willing, even like the early church, overjoyed to lay down our lives for others as well. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I think I ended on a note that sounds impossible. And rightfully so, because the mission of God cannot be accomplished apart from the Spirit of God. (laughs) Far be it from us to reduce the mission to something man can handle. To something man can manufacture and produce. We cannot do it. God, I am praying that in these moments that we have to sing and pray and reflect and gather around your word as your people together, that you would bring the risen Lord to us again. Put before our eyes his death and what it means, his love, how far he was willing to go, that he took hell. He took my hell. And God, let our hearts be so moved with love and empowered by His Spirit that we could go and do the same in the mundane moments on into the end if we are called to lay down our lives like every single one of these twelve, well, apart from Judas perhaps, did for you and for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.